Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twenty eighth of June, Tuesday. I stop work to breathe in the storm wind and bathe in the whirlpool of its noise. My shoulders feel heavy, as if I alone am holding up the blanket clouds that sag grey above my head. The water hose snakes and hisses around my feet. Head upright, neck relaxed. The cob swan pushes towards me, lazily doggy paddling a V of disturbance on the water's surface, and my day begins to smile. Don't worry, some ancient badger hasn't taken over the boat and taken to the airways. This is just a rather hoarse and croaky Richard tonight, welcoming you to the narrowboat Erica, as we narrowcast into the semi-dark of a July night, bearing a young sickle moon. Apologies for all the sniffs and snivels that I'm going to try and edit out, but no doubt you will still be able to hear. It is so good to see you, and welcome aboard. I've been a little bit out of action this week, and both Donna and I have caught something rather nasty. And actually, Donna's been really poorly, and I have really what's essentially just a heavy cold, which has gone to my chest a little bit, and it's been exacerbated by bad hay fever. And on top of all of that, we're also in the middle of having the Erica's electrics done. It's something that we've needed to do since we bought her. However, it has meant some quite long days and some quite physically heavy days too. Consequently, I'm feeling tonight a little bit like death warmed up. And I was actually worried that I wouldn't be able to record this week's episode at all. Um, and so I will be keeping it a little shorter as I'm not sure how long my voice will last out. Having said all that, it's lovely to be with you again and... Thank you for contacting me, and last week's episode drew quite a bit of response, so so thank you. And particularly hello and thank you to Claire Stanley Hollingsworth and Sarah Wally. Yeah, we do look so young in that photograph, don't we? And Sue, the bread lady, and Elaine Downs and Sandra Cook. And it's lovely to hear from you, Sandra. I had no idea that you listened to the podcasts. So thank you for getting in contact. And Helen Parry and Jim Morris, who had a stab at dating the photograph and got very close. It was actually the 80s rather than the 70s, but pretty close. And Peter Harvey and Tony Bell. And hello and welcome to new listener, Michelle. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcasts and thanks for the feedback on the, the noise level of the engine at the ending. And I have been using a quieter mix from, I think it's episode 80 or 81. And I am in the process of trying to find out how I can retro remix the episodes that are already uploaded. It's technically it's easy, but the actual process of doing it 
and how I fit that into the program of uploaded podcasts on the host site is not so easy. And as soon as I work out how, then I will endeavor to remix those as well. Thank you and hello also to Ed and to Margaret and to Laurie for getting in touch with me. And it's always great to hear from you all. And I'm so pleased with your news, Laurie. That's exciting times. And also thank you to Dr. Nature Girl for a fantastic review. Thank you. And it's also lovely to hear from Chris and Alan on the narrowboat Land of Green Ginger. Now, they contacted me, if you remember, I think it was in the spring to ask about whether I'd seen the cormorants recently, which made me realise that I hadn't for some time. Well, they contacted me again this week whilst continuing their cruising a little to the north to say that the cormorant population of the Trent is booming. So, good news to cormorant and cormorant admirers, but perhaps not quite so good news, I suspect, to any anglers up there. Come, join me here, beside the window on this anonymous, unremarkable dusk. There's something about the liveliness of the still world outside, a few inches from my eyes, that mesmerises and captivates me. I've come here to read, but my eyes are constantly drawn away, rebelling from the sentences stretching out on the page before me that I want to read. Why? What is it about this settled scene that I find so compelling? The evening light gradually stretches across the water on muffled oars. There is no fanfare of furnace orange skies. This is no evening of Instagram sunsets celebrated with a thousand likes, turning pillared clouds into burnished bronze and fire. It is just an almost imperceptible diminishing of light. A chalky sky hardening to grey, and grey hardening to even darker grey. It's just an anonymous, unremarkable dusk. Perhaps that is why I feel so drawn to it, and so at ease. The mirrored surface of the water is calm, but also alive, constantly shifting colours and motion. Last night it was slabby and choppy, like pebbled glass, gleaming dully like unpolished pewter. But tonight the surface shines glossy, and even though there is movement, the reflections are strong and unbroken, capturing the inverted details of the bankside the cloud statues of oxide daisies, a line of fencing and the sweep of grassy hillside. And the boat that's moored further down is joined at the waterline to its upended twin, each with their light grey cabins and turquoise trim lines and the white splash on their bows. I am watching two worlds. One is still as a painting, static, unmoving, slowly edging into darkness, the other full of light and movement, which is real.
which is alive. And I think it's this movement of the water that keeps arresting my eyes. It shivers and ripples, and the movement is strangely fast. That gives it the impression that somehow it's all wrong. If you were trying to create this for a film or video on CGI, you'd say, no, the movement of water is too rapid, too fast. Still, water doesn't ripple that quickly. But it does. From time to time, a solitary ring plays out as a fish breaks the surface. The ring expands, diminishing as it goes until at last it's absorbed in the general movement of the water. And every now and then, the surface is crisscrossed with ducks, in pairs or small groups. There goes the archdeacon and his small covey of accomplices, forging across the reflection of the boat and making it dance. His body is low in the water, swimming business-like and with purpose. Another group of four or five cut across in the opposite direction, I cannot hear their soft chucks and quacks, but know that there will be a lot of chatter. A lone female crosses on the diagonal, dips her beak into the water for a drink, and for a while she just floats there, slowly circling, watching the darkening world, unhurried, unstressed. She scratches her head with her flipper, shakes off the water, and then pushes off as another group swim purposefully past. This could be Paris, Hyde Park, Southwold Seafront, a promenade, a social evening of genteel perambulation, a fashionable saunter of the flaneur, taking the air before retiring for the night. One last circuit past the boats, one last forage by the irises and the rushes before night comes and sleep. So let's just sit here and enjoy and celebrate this unremarkable summer dusk, this twilight that is neither final nor sad, just the slow beat of the rhythm of the day and month and year the tidal flow of light and darkness that washes over us, slowing us down, taking the responsibility of hours and minutes out of our hands. Here, in this unhurried light, we are once more in our proper relationship with time. In an interview with the Irish poet and priest John O'Donoghue, O'Donoghue suggested that I think that one of the huge difficulties in modern life is the way that time has become the enemy. I'd say seven out of every ten people who turn up in a doctor's surgery are suffering from something stress-related. Now there are big psychological tomes written on stress, but for me, philosophically, stress is a perverted relationship to time so that rather than being a subject of your own time, you have become its target and victim. And time has become routine, 
So at the end of the day, you probably haven't had a true moment for yourself to relax in and just be. And dusk and twilight does us good. It gives us space for time. A time for sitting still like this. For watching the cares of the day float away with the receding light. We are people of the light. Look at how much we fear darkness still, even in the modern post-industrial world, flooding our geographies with artificial light as if in some way the things we fear, usually ourselves, can be kept at bay. The great myths and narratives that shape the Western cultures reflect this duality of light and dark. Dark is almost universally bad, to be shunned, avoided, Always move toward the light. Dark is where the bad things are. Fear, death, the unspeakable. Both Matthew Beaumont in his Psychogeographical History of Nighttime in London, Night Walking, and Roger Eckert's more broader study of the social history of the night at day's close both do well in highlighting how, historically, state institutions, primarily church and judicial, and then more latterly governmental, have until fairly recently sought to play on these very fears of darkness and use our cultural attitudes to the night as being a negative space in both social and religious terms, in order to control and encourage compliancy within the population. We have had plenty of time to build our antipathy toward the night and its darkness. And I'm finding it interesting to see how this theme is emerging once more in the more modern mythologies and how they appropriate and spin these ancient ideas and attitudes. For example, in the mythological and the atheist cosmology of Doctor Who, in both Doctor Who itself and in one of the spin-off series, Torchwood. Death has been repeatedly depicted as the ultimate terrifying darkness of nothing. And yet, at the same time, confusingly, and myths by their very nature can be creatively incoherent. In this darkness, there is something unknown. And because of it, it's something terrifying lurking and prowling. And so the earliest post-mortem narratives of the ancient Greeks and the Jews is revisited, reworked, rebranded to a secular, popular audience. And it's such a shame. Look out of the window. The darkness and its nightly emergence, its gentle enveloping of our worlds and landscapes, it's nothing to be feared, any more than the sun rising on the eastern rim of our horizons. So why do we so often not feel at home in the darkness, and that somehow our nights are just transitory periods between the serious stuff of our living and daytime? Because darkness is as much a part of this earth than the light is. Our world is a home to the darkness as much as it is to the light. 
and it is, after all, the natural state of the universe. Lightless, apart from the chemical flares of a billion billion stars, and they too, as far as we know, will one day fade out and return to darkness. We are John O'Donoghue again, sons and daughters of the darkness, just as much as we are of the light. Although unsurprisingly, given his Christian theological training, O'Donoghue locates this within a broader narrative of journey or transition as we gradually walk from the darkness into the light. Nevertheless, he acknowledges that this must be the kind of light that has retained its kinship with the darkness. It's those cycles, and the tide ebbs and flows again, isn't it? The pulses and rhythms that have become so disconcerting in our modern world of flattening and illusions of control, as if rhythms and cycles are in some way not natural. This night, this night that is falling outside our window and casting its embrace within the boat, deepening the corner shadows over there into richer darkness, softening and fading the warm browns of the wooden panels above our heads. It is good. The botanical scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer's article Nightfall captures beautifully in minute detail the flowing dance of daytime and nighttime, light and darkness warming and cooling, and how at this long blue moment of twilight hung on the cusp of a night and day, everything changes and reverses, from the flow of air and its resultant breezes that is no longer being warmed, that falls instead of rises, and its effect on the aerodynamic properties and capabilities of birds to the convection of water, the flow of water in plants and trees, replenishing once more the soils with water and nutrients. Nightfall, she argues, gives back what the day has taken. And I love these observations. But this is not simply about meteorology and botany. It's not simply about biology and our mammalian need for sleep. In his Anamkara, O'Donoghue writes these words that I find so powerfully insightful. The world rests in the night. Trees, mountains, fields and faces are released from the prison of shape and the burden of exposure. Each thing creeps back into its own nature within the shelter of the dark. Darkness is the ancient womb. Nighttime is womb time. Our souls come out to play. The darkness absolves everything. The struggle for identity and impression fall away. We rest in the night. And how we need those times, don't we? When the burden of our accumulated lives can slip from our shoulders 
may can be the people, childbirth naked that we are. Robert Louis Stevenson referred to these times as a nightly resurrection that freed him from the Bastille of civilization. That might be why something like this podcast can exert such a powerful emotional response from us. We can be here together in this shared space, understanding each other as we are not imprisoned by our bodies in a culture in which body image is so important and upon which we know judgments about us are made. Perhaps that is also why the scene just outside the window draws us into it. We may be diurnal creatures, but the dusk and the night time is also our world our home, one that we can so easily lose touch with or perceive as alien to us and even threatening. And still the dusk slowly gathers in its gentleness, and one of the portholes of the neighbouring narrowboats glows a soft warm light that spills out upon the night waters. Yes. This is our world too, and our souls can breathe more easily in the dark, for it was from darkness we came, lit on our way by the flash of suns and starlight. As Tom Hennon observes, darkness does not really fall, because it's already here and part of our home. Tom Hennon, Summer Night Air Night doesn't fall. It rises out of low spots, tree trunks, and the back of the old cow I am bringing home to milk. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very restful and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside, 12.3 degrees. Inside, 22 degrees. Humidity, 75%. Dew point, 9 degrees. Wind direction, southwest. Wind strength, nine miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1015.9, steady. Cloud cover, 10%. Cloud ceiling, none. Precipitation, 3.81 millimetres. Moon phase, 12.6%. Waxing crescent. Day length, 16 hours, 41 minutes. Sunset, 
2132. Skycasting 451.